Mark, fourth chapter, beginning at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stem, or stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? With that, we end the reading of God's word. And may the Spirit who gave us that word give understanding and ears to hear to those who are his people. Let's pray. This morning, Father, we come to you through your Son, our Savior and Lord, by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. We come in a day in which we lose an hour, and yet we ask that you would overcome that by granting us the ability, the power, the strength to be able to listen to your word, to hear the voice of your spirit, not only in the word, but the teaching of the word, that our hearts may be thrilled by it, our minds may be filled with it, and our lives would be controlled by it. Not to our benefit, but more to your glory than anything else. Therefore, my prayer, O Lord, this morning is that the meditations of my mouth and of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We are dealing with the Ten Commandments. We've started that part of the Catechism and especially the first table, Commandments 1 through 4. We've already gone through 1 and 2 where we've talked about that they are have no other gods than him. That's total commitment. And that we are not to make idols, which is a crass way of representing God. We now move on to the third one. Uh, and we are dealing with the working phrase that's in your outline. That the sovereign Savior creates worshipers who grow as disciples. And today we add, who treat him with all reverence and fear. Each week as we go through, we're going to add on a section dealing with the next commandment. So that by the time we're done, the whole paper, back and front, will have one sentence. And that's all you have now, not quite that. But we will, we will see that they build on one another. And I think you will see as I work through it, the, that saying one commandment also deals with other commandments that are yet to come. Kind of a preview of coming attractions. As, uh, as I mentioned last week, the way in which we're going to take a look at the commandments is in three parts. Each commandment has a portrait of God. 
going to see who God is because that's what is there. Then we take a look at the prescription of the commandment. How do you fulfill that commandment? And then you're going to take a look at the prohibition, that which you are not called to do because of the commandment. So as we take a look at this commandment, it is the third commandment from Exodus 20, verse 7. The commandment is this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The portrait comes from those two names that are in that commandment. One Lord, capital L, small O, small capital O-R-D, and the second word, uh, God. Those two words are descriptive as it, they describe the name of God. The first one is Lord, and it's the word from which we get, and you probably all know this, but it's the word we, that is translated Yahweh the Hebrew word, the sacred name. So sacred was it. And part of this commandment was that Jewish leaders and people would never even pronounce that name. They would be aghast that I even said Yahweh. They would pause. And every time they paused, people would know that's the name of the Lord in that passage or in that book. Or they did what we have had to do because there are no vowels in the original Hebrew, they had to take another word that meant Lord and combine it with the, the four letters and they came up with the word Jehovah or Yahweh because they took Adonai, added it to the four letters and that, that's one way in which they could talk about that name and not violate the commandment. It was so revered. It's a name that a few chapters earlier God had revealed himself to Moses. Who shall I say sends me? And he says, I am who I am. Yahweh. Tell them that the I am has sent you. Sent me you to them. And in doing that, he describes exactly who he is. I am. I'm the self-sufficient one. I am the uncreated one. I am the eternal one. I am the one who needs nothing, dependent upon nothing. I create simply out of the word of my mouth. I sustain simply out of the word of my mouth. I am. Far different than any one of us because every one of us had some way a, a creator. Parents who had to uh, join in order to create us. Unless one of you were born of a virgin, and if you are, please tell me, because it would really be nice to know that. But no, none of you have been. You've all come that. You're also dependent upon other things. Your parents when you're growing up, brothers and sisters if you've had them, friends, others, employers, you're all dependent upon them. God is not dependent upon anybody. The second name is the name God. Elohim. It's the one that's used in Genesis 1.1 where it says God created the heaven and the earth. It's the name Elohim. The supreme God. The one who oversees and is above every other majesty, magisterium, every other person 
the supreme. And it is a plural form of the word God. El is a singular, but Elohim means almost a grouping of God. So when you get down to Genesis 1.26 and it says, let us make man in our image, we shouldn't be surprised. Because in Genesis 1.1 he said, Elohim, the plural God, created us and created the whole world. And he preserves that wor world by his word. Uh, New Testament writers, and Paul especially, go beyond that in Colossians 1.17 when it's describing Christ and he says, in Christ all things hold together. Imagine what that was like. Here he is in human flesh walking, sleeping in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm and yet he's the same time that he's producing that storm and holding it together. An amazing picture of who he is. Or Hebrews 3.1, Jesus again the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus holds all things together. He does that. That's powerful. I mean, we have trouble gluing things together, right? Because the glue separates, unless you have Gorilla Glue, and then that really works well. Or, or my favorite, duct tape, right? But even that breaks off. Here's one who holds all things together by his word. And this is a God who is set out before us in this commandment. The Lord, your God. Both of those names are anchored upon the holiness of God. And I think this is part of what this commandment is, is moving toward. For us to remember that God is a holy God. Now, normally when we think about holiness, we think about number one on your sheet. That is purity cleanliness or absolute cleanliness, absolute wholeness, absolute co completeness without stain or wrinkle. When I was choosing the pants I'm wearing today, I took a look at them to make sure there wasn't a stain on them. And now everybody else is <laughs> checking about it, make sure whether they have a stain or not. Because I want something that is pure, that is nice. Almost wore my white pants, but it's not quite Memorial Day, and you don't wear white until Memorial Day, right? Oh, well. But that's, that's the idea of, of purity. We can't even consider it since we live in a tainted world. Did you enjoy the blue sky of this week? Wasn't it nice to see that big orange ball up there instead of the gray clouds? But even the blue sky we see is not the bluest of all blues. It's tainted. Now, we can go into why it's tainted. But probably when we get into heaven, you're really going to see a blue sky. You will know what a blue sky is like because it will be pure. And that's the way it is with God. He is absolutely clean, not tainted. Nothing wrong with him. He is also, it also holiness, and this is the primary idea of, the, of holiness, is a apartness. He's absolutely different from everything we know. Theologically, we call this his otherness. He is so separated from his creation that he is other than that. When we were looking at the pursuit of God 
and by A.W. Tozer. And part of my pre preparation was also looking at A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. When he got to the idea of holiness, he wrote, it's not fully comprehended, but it's sensed, it's felt in the spirit that God is so far different from us that we cannot comprehend him. He is way beyond anything we have, a way, uh, to, any way to understand it. And therefore, it becomes, as uh, Rudolf Otto put in a tiny little book that he wrote, he is the uh, mysterium tremendum. Theology loves Latin. I don't, but theology loves Latin. And the, the, the idea of that, it's an awesome mystery. We can talk about it, but we really can't comprehend it. We may sense in the presence of God someone who is absolutely beyond anything and is other than we are. But at the same time, we are stuck to say, well, I, I can't really capture that in my mind. And part of that otherness is that he is the standard. He just doesn't make the standard. He is the standard by which everything else is judged and measured. And all of his attributes, love, mercy, wrath, you take a look at them, all of them are described in the, in the sense of his otherness, his apartness, his holiness. For instance, Isaiah is in the temple. He's in the temple and he's in the Holy of Holies because that's the only time you would ever have seen the seraphim and the, the ark, which meant he was one of the high priests, or at least he was a priest of renown at his time. And that would have meant that he was a man who was spectacular in his righteousness. You know, they used to tie a rope around the ankle of the priests when they went into the Holy of Holies because if they weren't righteous, God would strike them dead and they had to have some way to pull them out. <laughs> That's the idea that was there. And he's given this vision of God. His, 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 uh, his train, thank you, of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim singing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, almighty maker of heaven and earth. There he is. The glo his glory fills the earth. And what's Isaiah's response? Well, that's neat. Whoa. Thank you, Jesus. No, thank you, Lord. No. He says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am disintegrating when I see God. That's because he is so beyond anything that we know and that we have any idea about. That really helps us to deal, and it ought to help us to deal when people say, I saw God. Well, did you, did you disintegrate? <laughs> did you fall down on your face? Because that's the way he is. And that being the way his names describe that, and we have to remember that's his character. And that's what 
this, the commandment tells us. The Lord our God is so utterly pure, so utterly different than we are that we need to take care how we use his name. The idea in the scripture is when you have a name, it describes the whole person. If you call me Andy, you have a sense of who I am. Andrew, Greek, strong man. Well, I used to be strong man. <laughs> it sometimes describes. Now, now, there are times when people mix up my name. Maybe I don't say it clearly, but they want to call me Randy. Or they call me Gerhardt or Gary. And I kind of look at them and say, Randy and Gary, that's not it. That's not my name. That doesn't describe who I am. I have a first name and then I have a last name. And that last name describes my lineage. It describes part of my background of, of German and English. And maybe if, I, I got to take one of those tests to find out if I have a little bit of Indian, Native American in me, just for the sake of it. But that describes who I am. And the name of God describes who he is. And the commandment says, you be careful with that name. It's a precious, powerful name. So that's a prescription of the command. How are we worship him as those rescued to be worshipers? How are we to worship him? Worship begins with a person. We worship the sovereign Savior who deserves our total commitment that we have no other gods without crass representation, idols, carved images, with a correct attitude, focusing in upon the use of his name. And this is where question 99 in the Heidelberg Catechism comes in. What is required in the third commandment? That we must not by cursing or by false swearing, nor yet by unnecessary oaths profane or abuse the name of God, nor even by our silence or connivance be partakers of these horrible sins in others. And in summary, that we use the holy name of God in no other way than with fear and reverence so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us and be glorified in all our words and works. You know, the way of theology usually begins with a negative. This is, no, this is what it's not. And then it goes to the positive. And this is where the catechism. It begins by stating the negatives. Cursing, false cursing, unnecessary oaths, abusing the name of God. And this is one that gets me being silent when somebody does use it in that way. And when I was reading this, it just hit home. Because I've known people and I've heard people who have used the name of God in the wrong way. And I didn't say a thing. That's to my everlasting shame. And yet it probably, I'm not alone Am I alone in this? Is, I'm the only one who's never said anything to anybody when they've used the name of God in the wrong way. Obviously, nobody else wants to raise their hand. <laughs> okay. So that's part of the, the negative. The catechism basically states we've got to watch our language. We've got to be careful 
with the words that we say. It's like Jesus said, and James picks up on this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's one of the reasons why as you grow and mature as a Christian, your language begins to change. If you came from a household or a background where swearing and oaths and uh, misuse of the name of God was common, as you grow, then you ought to be growing and not doing that. And you ought to be growing that when you hear it in a movie or TV or on the radio or a friend, you just cringe inside. How could you misname, misuse the name of the one who created you, who gives you life, sustains you? If forever a moment he forgot you, you would poof, be gone. And yet, people use it that way. Because you see, when... You become part of the family. You take the family's name. Wedding ceremonies. The wife takes the husband's name. Our day and age, you can hyphenate it. Or sometimes in our day and age, you keep your your maiden name and that's what you go by. But the same goes with children. You have children and they take the family name. And when you have adopted children, you change their name. So the last name is your name. And with everything that goes with that name goes with the family and with the people. To take the name of Jesus calls us to show sincerity and reverence for his purpose, person because we took the name of Jesus. We are called and we were called first this in Antioch Christians, which means little Christ. It was not a compliment. It was a derogatory term. But it was a term that said, these people follow Jesus Christ. Or another way to translate it, these people are soldiers of Christ. And you take that name, you take the name that you have to live up to. That name of that's superior above every other name. Paul to the Philippians talks about the superior superiorness of Christ's name when he says in uh, Philippians 2 therefore verse 9 God has exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Or you can see Revelation 5 when Jesus is unveiled in heaven. Everybody bows down to him. The name of Jesus is not that he's talking about, that Paul's talking about. It's not Jesus. He says, God, the subject, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what is the name that is above every name? It wasn't Jesus. Jesus was a common name back then. A lot of Jesus is running around in first century Israel. But the name that was bestowed upon him was Yahweh. And Jesus recognized that. For he would talk and he would say, I am. You look at the Gospel of John and how many times he says, I am. I am the door. I am life. I am, I am, I am. And when he finally got before the uh, the tribunals and they asked him who are you he says I am 
I'm Yahweh. And they said, he's blasphemed. They understood what he was saying. He was using the name of God and applying it to himself. And so did the disciples and the church. His name is Yahweh. That's the name above every other name. It's a superior name that he had. And therefore, we need to use it carefully. And we need to remember that it's not simply the proper name, but it's also the slang for that name. I went to Webster's Dictionary, a firm authority in what words mean. And I looked up the word G's, and it means slang for Jesus. And then I looked up the word gosh, and I said slang for God. You see, what we do is, is we try to play games with names. We said, well, if I don't say the name, I'm okay. So, you know, it's like the Pharisees who built wall around the, the law. We build a wall around, I just say geez, or gosh, or gosh darn it. Well, we never use those words, but they're right there with it. That's exactly what it means. So every time you say geez or gosh, you're, you're misusing the name of God. Oh, Andy, you ruined my day. I am paid to ruin your day. <laughs> that's why I'm here. But you see, that's part of the negativeness of using it as a curse. There's another way in which it's used. I, I think I've told you this before. A man I know who was a worker in a steel mill and had a really sailor's tongue and vocabulary. He was, he was great. And then he got converted and all of a sudden, he began to say, instead of the equivalent of Jesus and, and gosh, he would say, praise the Lord, praise God. And yet his whole attitude were as if he were saying Jesus and gosh. And he says, well, you're using the right language, but with the wrong attitude. And that's what this commandment is saying. It is the attitude that you demonstrate by the words that you use and it's the attitude that you are looking for. Well, that moves us into the positive part of using the name in that, that uh, question number 99. And that is to use the name in such fear and reverence that we would worship, we rightfully confess and worship and glorify God. To do it in fear and reverence. And in your outline, I put about eight different examples of how they do that. And I don't have time to go through all eight. Some of them I did with Exodus, with Moses. Um, I love the one of Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 9 to 13. Elijah has just defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. He runs back to Samaria and he thinks everything's going to change and Jezebel is just as wicked as she was before. In fact, threatens to kill him. And so he runs away and he hides himself in a cave and he's having a big pity party. I'm the only prophet. I don't, there aren't any others. God, no, 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 no. And God has to come and say, hey, look, I got my prophets. Don't worry about this. I'm handling it. And then he asks to show for God to show him his glory. And along comes a strong wind. It's enough to tear up the mountains. 
I mean, we think the tornado that hit Alabama was bad. Tear up a mountain. That's a strong wind. And then comes a great earthquake that would split the mountains. I mean, we've had little tremors around here that have rattled the teacups on the shelf. And maybe in California they have greater earthquakes. But this one breaks up mountains. And then there was a raging inferno, a fire, even worse than the fires in California that we saw on the news. But God was not in any one of those. Frightens us to death. But when he comes, he comes and it says in verse 12, a low whisper, a thin silence. And Elijah wraps his cloak around him and trembles at a low whisper, a thin silence. Sometimes I wonder if we can hear God in his thin silence because we like to surround ourselves with noise. It's one of the problems of uh, our, our day, especially with smartphones and tablets and computers that we can have playing all the time. I mean, when I study, I love to listen to Pandora, classics for studying or hymns. But at the same time, I know there's a time to shut down Pandora and just listen. But to see a, a low whisper, a thin silence, and he's utterly trembling in his sandals. That's fear and reverence. Or you have Habakkuk, one of my favorite minor prophets. Habakkuk who sees a Syrian army coming and he, they're going to destroy and punish Jerusalem and Israel for what they have become. And he cries out and says, violence and you will not save. You, you, why do you make me see the iniquity and why do you idly talk, look at wrong? And God says, yes, I'm going to destroy Israel. And then he comes and Isaiah says, I'll take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower. I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer con concerning my complaint. I'm just going to sit and wait. And how does God respond to him? Basically, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Key verse of all the scriptures. The righteousness will live by his faithfulness is another way to take a look at it. And there he is left. He begins to talk about woes to the Chaldeans for who they are and what they do. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds, founds a city on iniquity. And then he ends with, he adds a little note of hope. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Yahweh, Elohim, that name, that holiness, that glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. And the, finally he gets to the place where he says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! Or to a stone, Arise! 
can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. And then he adds this phrase, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Hush! It's basically what it says. Shut your mouth. The Lord is in your, his holy temple. And after that encounter with God, he ends it by saying this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I mean, it's very parallel to, to Isaiah. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The man is absolutely undone by being in the presence of God. Or the passage I read. Jesus says, let's go across the other side. Now you think if Jesus said, let's go to the other side, you're going to get to the other side? Probably. There's, you know, if I were a betting man, I think I'd bet that you're going to get to the other side. Well, while you're, that's happening, it's a storm which comes down on the Sea of Galilee, which happens a lot of times. And in that storm, it is so vicious the seasoned fishermen who have been out there on storms before absolutely go crazy. The boat begins with filled with water and they go back to Jesus. Listen to this. Who's asleep in the stern. Are you kidding me? I've been out on bad seas or bad lakes. In fact, a lake about the size of the uh, Sea of Galilee in a storm that had four to five foot waves. And I've been trying to get this little boat across so that we could bring it in for the summer. And I said, I'm not going to sleep in the back. <laughs> I'm holding on to the, uh, to the, the wheel and, the, and I'm getting as far as I can. And they wake him up and they said, help us, we're going to drown. And he stands up and he says two words. Peace. Hush. It's the only two words in Greek. And all of a sudden, absolute calm. And the storm dissipates. Again, I've watched storms come across lakes. And I've seen it at its worst, and then I've seen it go away. I've never seen it where the waves have all of a sudden become absolute calm. And the wind doesn't blow. That's what Jesus did. You remember the response of the disciples? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Now, now catch it. Jesus is the one who holds all things together, who in his divine person is still controlling wind and waves and weather. While in his humanity, he's sleeping in the boat. In essence, he brought the storm in there. And when he wakes up and he simply says two words and the storm disappears. And all of a sudden, those disciples, as they will be done several times, are filled with the 
amazement of who this Jesus is. He is Yahweh, the sovereign God, the God of great power. And all of a sudden there's a new appreciation for who he is. And they tremble. I mean, they didn't say, thank you, Jesus. They fell down on their faces and trembled before him for who he is. Exactly the way we are called to do. These are but a small example of the normal response of a person who comes into the presence of God. It's not hi-fi, good buddy, wonderful that I'm here with you. It is to fall down in fear and trembling before him and to shake of who he is. Why? So that we may rightly confess and worship our God to correctly know who he is who saves us. This is not some deity like any other of the deities that man makes an idol that you say, awake, arise, filled, surrounded by gold, and yet has no breath in it. This is a God who controls all things. Therefore, it's important how we address him. I talked to you about Jesus and gosh. How about the phrase I, I hear time and time again? The man upstairs. Well, first of all, he's not a man. He's God. And second of all, I live in a one-floor house. I don't have an upstairs. No, but he's not upstairs. He's all around us. And yet we use that phrase, and sometimes even Christians use that phrase. The man upstairs. How degradating that is to the name and character of God for that to be used. And you can probably have other ones. When we come here Sunday morning, we have to remember we're coming into the sanctuary, the place set apart to be in the absolute presence of this holy God. And when we come here, we can't come in a cavalier manner. We cannot just kind of bebop in and think, oh, this is great. Remember last week I told you how to prepare throughout the week? Monday through Wednesday, you remember what happened on Sunday. Thursday through Saturday, you prepare for the next Sunday. Saturday night, you spend time in prayer for the leadership and for the service. You find out what the passage is that we're going to take a look at both in the catechism and the John sermon, and you read it and you think about it and you meditate upon it. You get up early Sunday morning to say your prayers and to pray for what goes on. And that means that when you're doing daylight savings time, you go to sleep an hour earlier. I know this is too late for you all now, but you go to sleep an hour early so you get a good night's rest when you come in. This is also one of the reasons why I don't like coffee in the sanctuary has nothing to do with getting a stain on the pews and the rug. Because if you get strong enough cleaner, you can get rid of that. But it becomes a sign as if we're equal with God. I'm going to go home, sit down with my God, have a cup of coffee, and enjoy a cup of joe with him. Now you don't do that with God. Because he is so other. He is so holy. It's not that he is a friend. He is. Jesus is a friend to us. 
but he's also our master and our king. Our son worked for the President of the United States in communication. His last day, they said, we want you to go see the chief. And he thought, okay, I'm just going to go see a general. No, no, he said, get your best suit on. They took him over to the White House, ushered him into the Oval Office, took a picture of him with the president. When you enter into the Oval Office, it's an amazing, frightening event. Even seasoned politicians enter into that place and they feel the weight of the presidency, no matter who the president is. And sometimes they become babbling fools in, the, in that room for what it is. And yet we think we can just come. And he had to have his best suit on and his wife came with him and had to have her best clothes on. And he came into that place and stood with the president. Awesome. Awesome. And we think we can simply come in here any way we want and do anything we want, and act any way we want. Joke, talk, instead of being silent and reflecting. Many, well, I would say traditional mainline churches have a prelude. In fact, if you listen, they play music. A little silent in the background. But music is playing, and that time is a time for all talking to stop. For people to listen to what is being played, to appreciate the beauty and maybe the words of the music, but to be praying for what's going to come and to, some people, center the soul upon God. Focus in upon the worship service and not just kind of run in at the last time, last moment. Why? Because we're showing respect to the holiness of God. In order that, and this is the third part of the prescription, that he may be glorified in all we do. Paul, at the end of his magnus opus on theology, he's finished what we have as 11 chapters of deep theology, and he goes in the application, and he says in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It goes far beyond simply Sunday morning, but it's everything that we do is to call to glorify God. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, in all things glorify Him. All we're doing here on Sunday morning is practicing what we are supposed to do throughout the week. And the language we would not want to use in this place is the language we do not use in the other places that we go. Because our whole idea is to glorify God, to confess that He is worthy of all worship. Well, we get to the prohibition of the commandment and that is swearing or cursing it's so grievous listen it's so grievous a sin that his wrath is kindled against those who do it uh, all those who do not help as much as they can to hinder is forbid it no sin greater more provoking to God 
than the profaning of his name, wherefore he even commanded it to be punished with death. And they quote Leviticus 24, 15 to 16. Somebody blasphemes him, God, all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. Nothing more serious than the misuse of the name of God. Well, I always thought the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Not even on par with the misuse of God's name. In the theocracy, you were stoned. Now, you ought to be glad you live in the New Testament time because you're out of the theocracy and therefore the, role, the rules of the theocracy don't apply here. Otherwise, back behind the shed, we would have this big pile of stones. And anyone we hear blaspheming or misusing the name of God, we'd take them out there and we'd stone them. That would make a very small congregation. Nobody would want to come. But if it was serious enough in the Old Testament, has God lost his holiness between the old and the new? No. If anything, we ought to consider him more holy because we know of his son, Jesus Christ. That is how serious it is. I think the death we have now is not a death by stoning, but it's a death in our relationship with God. You know, I've been called Rod, uh, Randy, Gary. I've been called some other names I can't repeat here. <laughs> and when somebody calls me by those other names, I can handle Rand, Randy and Gary. I say, okay, we mixed it up. But when I get called by other names, there's a death in a relationship. Because you're not respecting me. And if I call somebody by those names, I'm not respecting them. The same thing goes in how we address God and how we work it. And then there's a question, 102. Can we swear by the saints or by any other creature? And again, the historical issue is the Roman Catholic Church would use the names of the saints. It says, no, for a lawful oath is calling upon God that he as the only searcher of hearts may bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely which honor is due to no creature. No other name has a power in the depth of the name of God. And so we don't declare anyone else. Next week, St. Patrick's Day, right? People will say, well, by St. Patrick, I'll only have two beers instead of five. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't use the name that way. Nor can you, uh, on the other side, the question is, may we swear reverently by the name of God? Again, it's a historical issue. Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation said, so you make no, notes, no oaths at all. You cannot make an oath. And the Reformers would say, no, the state is part of the created order, and they have a right to require oaths. And therefore, if the state requires an oath, such as in marriage or when you take an office in the state, you must give. You must pronounce that oath. Why? Because God himself made oaths. Biblical characters gave oaths. An oath is a way to promote the fidelity and truth to the glory of God 
and our neighbors, the two great commandments. When, you, when we are here for a wedding, there is an oath that is said. I, Andy, a- Andrew, take you, Peggy, to be my wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses that I will be your husband. And if we were Anglican, we would have added forsaking all others in sickness and in health, in richness and in poverty, in the good times and the bad times. Paraphrase. That's an oath. When I stood before Presbytery and I answered the ordination vows, I took an oath. And therefore, when we do the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed in my denomination doesn't use God from God and light from light and truth from truth. It uses the word of. And therefore, I say the word of because I took an oath that that's how I would proclaim it. So if you hear this strange voice go, of, 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 you know who it is. <laughs> and you kind of cringe, go, there's Andy doing it all over again. But you see, that's the power of this commandment. We are to use the word, the Lord's name as reverently and in fear of misusing it. We are to be true to our word We are to give an oath when we have to give an oath. But we ought to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And even if it hurts us to fulfill that, even if it means we have to give up something else we'd rather do or whatever it is, we do it because that's our oath. And people trust what we have to say because that's what the commandment tells us to do. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we look to you because even as much as we would love to, we cannot fulfill this commandment in and of ourselves. We look to your forgiveness when we have failed to fulfill it. Whether it is we have misused your name, whether or not we have forgotten our oaths, whether or not we are people who play loose with words and language. We ask for your forgiveness and we plead the blood of Christ for that forgiveness. We pray that you would empower us with the Spirit to watch over our mind as we look to you and understand you, our heart as we Uh, come in in worship our mouths as we speak our hands as we do that in all things we would glorify that name that is above every other name and we would be careful to follow you for you are our sovereign savior who created us to worship you and has shown us who you are help us O Lord for without you We are indeed weak people. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all of God's people said, Amen.